Friends, I hope that you noticed that the tune of that hymn is Moody. That hymn is named after the famous American evangelist gospel preacher Dwight L. Moody of the 19th century. Our second lesson for the day comes from the New Testament epistle letter of 1 John chapter 3 beginning at verse 1. As I prepare to read this text, I invite you to prepare to receive, to hear and receive some tremendous promises from God's Word. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, the author says, See what love the Father has given us. Some translations say, see what love the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called, we could be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he, Jesus, is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is the word of God. Friends, would you pray with me? God, we know that you have gathered us together on this day in this place. We give you thanks for the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks for the Easter reality that the risen Christ is among us. God, we pray that you will focus us, you will draw our attention on that Jesus. May we hear his words to us today. God, we thank you that your spirit has words for each one of us this morning, so we pray that you will give us ears to hear what you are saying to us this day. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I suspect that by this point in our relationship, you understand that I have a great, great fondness for John Wesley uh, for a lot of reasons, but my fondness for John Wesley really is because I think that John Wesley was the most biblical preacher that the Christian community has seen in the West since the days of the earliest Christian community. So I have a great, great fondness for John Wesley. That doesn't surprise you. I suspect that even my appointment to Wesley Memorial Church has something to do with my great, great fondness for John Wesley. I believe that John Wesley 
John Wesley knew the scriptures than, better than just about anybody else in 18th century England. John Wesley, when God used him to bring about that great Wesleyan revival of the 18th century, a revival that 75 million of us around the world, not just United Methodists, but 75 million of us around the world trace our spiritual heritage to that revival. I suspect that John Wesley simply believed the only thing he was doing there in his day, in his time and place, was to restore what he called primitive Christianity. He was simply preaching the Bible. If you go look at Wesley's sermons, and by the way, I encourage you to do that. You can find them all over the internet. If you go look at Wesley's sermons, you soon realize that about 50% of the text of his sermons are nothing but the repetition of Scripture. At one point, John Wesley said that if you cut a Methodist, their blood should be bibline. We as Methodist people, in the, in the spirit and lineage of John Wesley, if we get cut, we should bleed Bible. So I'm very, very fond for, of John Wesley because John Wesley was very, very fond of the Scriptures. John Wesley was convinced and he tried to convince the church of his day because we need to be reminded of this periodically that our faith as Christians should be based primarily and significantly upon the scriptures. Now we look at scriptures in an intelligent way. We use tradition, we use reason, we use our experience to study scripture but Scripture is our primary authority, not what we think, not what we feel, not what someone's told us, not what we have experienced in life, not what we have reasoned ourselves to believe, but Scripture has to be our primary authority. John Wesley believed that strongly. And John Wesley, by the way, had a very unique relationship to our text this morning the text that I read a few moments ago, John Wesley had a very unique, intimate relationship, if you will, with the New Testament letter of 1 John. Perhaps you know that. But if you look at the sermons, the thousands of sermons that John Wesley preached, there's a significant number of those sermons. And some of his most significant sermons are based on text from this little epistle in the New Testament that we call 1 John. At one place, referencing 1 John, John Wesley said that if the preacher would imitate any part of the oracles of God above all else, let it be the first epistle of St. John. John Wesley said that 1 John is the deepest part of the Holy Scripture, above all other inspired writings, the sublime and simple compendium of all Holy Scripture, the plain and full account of genuine Christianity. So I'm very fond of John Wesley because John Wesley was very fond of Scripture and he was very fond of this little epistle in the New Testament, 1 John John has given as much in the New Testament. We've got the Gospel of John, and then we've got the three little letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John in the New Testament. 
and he was very, very fond of First John, this little letter that we find in the New Testament. And I believe the reason, if you look at how Wesley used First John, I believe the reason that John Wesley was so enamored with First John was because of the audacious, wondrous promises that we find in 1 John. And friends, I hope you know these promises in 1 John. I hope that you know them well. They, in many ways, are almost unbelievable promises. And they are promises that teach us about who we are, about our need for the work of God in Jesus Christ. They are promises about what God has done in Jesus Christ and what God continues to do in our lives through Jesus Christ. That's why John Wesley was so appreciative of this little epistle in the New Testament because of these audacious promises, almost unbelievable promises that we find in 1 John. In our text I read for a few moments ago, just three verses out of 1 John, we see a couple of those promises. One of the promises is almost unbelievable because it's such a harsh, hard promise to hear. It doesn't fit the sentiment of our age. It doesn't fit pop culture around us. And then the second promise that I'll be talking about from this text is almost unbelievable because it's so great, so tremendous, so audacious. But the first promise that I want you to notice here in this text, and it alludes to a basic conviction of the New Testament, and the Old Testament, is this. It is almost something hard, harsh to hear, and it's so countercultural. If you'll believe this, you'll be countercultural. But the scriptures are very clear that everyone on planet Earth cannot, cannot be called, in a New Testament sense, in a theologically reflective sense, a child of God. Now, I know in our culture we like to say, well, everyone's a child of God. If you say that to me, I'm going to say it depends on, upon what you mean by child of God. And that, because I'm fond of John Wesley, who is fond of the Scripture, I'm going to encourage you to think about it being used in a New Testament, Old Testament way. What does it mean to call someone a child of God. Now, the Bible does teach that every human being is a creation of God. Every human being is a creation of God. That's why we can say every human being bears the image of God. Every human being is a person for whom Christ died. But the New Testament particularly, particularly John and the Apostle Paul, used, uses the phrase child of God in a very specific way. So if you want to be biblical, New Testament, Christian, I encourage you to use that phrase, child of God, like the Bible uses child of God. Everyone is a creation of God. We know that. God is creator. We are creatures. Everyone is a creation of God, but not everyone is a child of God in the New Testament sense. Let me explain. Go with me for a few moments. We know the difference between a biological father, we even have um, almost vulgar colloquial phrases for someone, 
and I've struggled since 8.30 this morning to not use these phrases, but you can imagine these phrases. We have phrases that refers to someone who is only a biological father. They have provided the physiology in order to help create a baby. That's a biological father. That person it is someone that, that is participating in creation of a child. So we know what a biological father is. There's a big difference between just simply a biological father. That's wonderful. But between just simply a biological father and a daddy, a papa, or what the New Testament says, an Abba, Aramaic for papa. There's a big difference between those. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament, to say child of God means specifically to be in a certain type of relationship. Not just an offspring of God. Though that's wonderful. But someone for whom their relationship with God is more than just offspring and creation. In the New Testament, Paul talks about the need to be adopted into the family of God. Probably one of the most theologically significant passages in the New Testament is the prologue of John's Gospel. Chapter 1 of John's Gospel. The rest of John's Gospel goes to explain the prologue, chapter 1 of John's Gospel. And 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, those epistles talk about some of those same ideas that are explained out of the prologue of John's Gospel. If you look at John chapter 1, that magnificent opening to John's Gospel, this is what you will read. He, Jesus, was in the world and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. He's talking about the Jewish people of his age, the Jewish leaders of his age. Then the text in 1 John goes on to say, But, but, to all who receive him, there's the first condition, who believed in his name, that's the second condition. He gave power. He gave power. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The New Testament knows the difference between someone who is just born of blood, of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, and someone who has experienced another birth, the rebirth, the spiritual birth, the birth from above, the birth that allows us to be adopted, as Paul says, into the family of God. It's all about relationship, and we know that. If you look at earthly fathers and children, you know that there can be a dramatic difference and the New Testament uses that phrase, child of God, in a very specific way. It's someone who, through the work of Christ, has entered into an intimate relationship with God. More than just God as creator, that's marvelous. But God as a presence and power relationship. That's the way the New Testament uses the phrase children of God. And here in 1 John, here in this text, 
John is writing to the Christian community. He's not writing to the world at large. He's writing to the Christian community who know the work of Christ and have benefited from the work of Christ. And he starts out by saying, saying, see what love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that they did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And then we start getting into the second promise that's described here in this text, this promise that is audacious and wondrous, almost too good to believe. He says that as children of God, we are children of God now through the work of Christ, the love that's been lavished on us. What we will be has not yet been revealed John says, what we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him. Hmm. For we will see him as he is, and all who have this hope in Jesus purify themselves just as he is pure. So this promise is almost too good to be believed. He's saying those of us who are in Christ who have allowed God to take us to a depth of a relationship through the work of Christ, it's not yet been revealed. We can't imagine what we will be like one day. But he says, he promises here in this text, but when he, Jesus, is revealed, end of history, we will be like him. Jesus in the Gospels makes it very, very clear that there are two families on planet Earth, and you get to decide of which family you want to be part. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a debate with some religious leaders. Perhaps you recall the text, and as he's talking to those religious leaders, and he doesn't like a lot about those religious leaders, he says to them, This is harsh. This is Jesus, not me. He says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. So there are two families on planet Earth. We're all created by the same God, but there's two families on planet Earth, according to the New Testament. I didn't write it, according to the New Testament. And the good news is, News almost too wondrous to be believed that through the gift of Jesus Christ, we can enter into a depth of relationship with God, that we can be called children of God on a completely different level, and that we will one day be like the prototypical child of God, Jesus. We will one day be like Him. That's the promise, that's the good news. That's the good news that is almost too hard to believe because it's so wondrous. You know, this is all about the work of Christ. That's why John Wesley was so enamored with 1 John. It's all about the grace of God in Christ, what what God is doing to us and through us through the work of Christ. And it is amazing grace, if you really stop to think about it. And we need to make sure the world around us knows this. You know, it's important. It's really, really important 
what we say and what we do at funerals. Funerals are an opportunity for us to declare the good news to the world. Funerals are an opportunity for us to celebrate who we know Jesus Christ is, but perhaps to share that good news with some people that don't know this well. It's important what we do and say at funerals. And 35 years ago, I never thought I needed to say that to the Christian community. But over the last 30-plus years, what I've noticed, and I understand it, I really get it, what I've noticed is people want to do as little as possible sometimes when funerals, when death occurs. And they want to do away with a lot of the traditions that have meant a lot to the Christian community for centuries. And one of the reasons those traditions mean, means a lot to the Christian community is because we Christians, like the Jews before us and like the Jews of today, they believe that our care of the dead is a great act of mercy. And that's why it's always been really important what we do, how we treat the dead and what we do in those moments. So it is rather strange that we Christians come together when someone dies in some form or fashion. It's important what is done and said at funerals. Those are great teachable moments for the culture. I hope, by the way, all of you had an opportunity to see the funeral yesterday of Prince Philip. If you didn't, go to YouTube, go to Netflix. It's easy to find. Give it some time and watch the funeral of Prince Philip. On so many levels, I recommend this to you. Of course, Prince Philip, um, Queen Elizabeth, they are part of the Church of England, and that is our mother church as Methodist. John Wesley lived and died a um, clergy of the Church of England. I'm told he was buried with his prayer book. So when you look at the Church of England in worship, uh, we have a heritage to that. That's our mother church as Methodist. So I encourage you to look at the simple funeral yesterday. And it was a rather simple funeral by Church of England standards. That was Prince Philip's wish. I want you to notice as you watch that simple funeral of Prince Philip, the amount of time that the queen and the royal family spent on their knees in prayer. I noticed that. I hope others noticed that. I think it's important what we do at funerals. I hope the whole wide world watches the funeral of Prince Philip because I think we're at a place in Western civilization where we need to be reminded of some things of which we were reminded yesterday in that funeral. We were reminded of the importance of things such as reverence. We were reminded of the importance of things such as loyalty, duty. We were reminded of such things as decorum. You know, I'm even beyond discussing the need for decorum with our culture. I just want to talk about modesty a little in our culture but the need for modesty or decorum. So I hope that you watch that funeral. It's important what happens when death occurs. It's important what we say and do in moments like that because they're amazingly effective, teachable moments. And I don't want to lose those moments in our culture. Perhaps the losing of those moments is helping the 
the rapidly secularization of our culture here in the United States. It's important what we say and do in funeral services. I, I, I very much appreciate the liturgy, the worship of the Methodist funeral. Now, there's a lot of leeway in doing Methodist funerals, but there's two things in our Methodist funeral liturgy that I will do at every funeral, unless you stop me somehow. I will try to do it every funeral. That's the opening words of the Methodist funeral liturgy and the closing words of the Methodist funeral liturgy. These words are important. If you perhaps remember, and if you are a Methodist, you've heard this many, many times if you've hung out with us for a while. Among the opening words of the funeral service are these words right here from 1 John. Among the opening words in the Methodist funeral service we hear, here and now, dear friends, we are God's children. What we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when he appears, and we know, this is talking about Jesus, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Those who have this hope purify themselves, as you've heard, as Christ is pure. Every time I read that at the beginning of a funeral service in the Methodist tradition, I wonder how many people in the room know what I'm talking about, about becoming pure as Christ is pure, about how our gaze upon Jesus can purify us, can change us, can transform us. God's grace working in our lives saves us, forgives us, pardons us, frees us from the dominion and power of sin in this life and one day will take us to the other side where we will be free from the very presence of sin itself as we continue to gaze on Jesus Christ. That gazing on Jesus Christ will help us become more and more pure as Christ is pure. I'm not even sure the world around me would define the word pure like we define the word pure, impurity. Those are important words that occur at the beginning of Methodist funeral liturgy. And then the other phrase that I will use, unless you somehow make me not use it, is when we get to the end of the funeral liturgy and we're at the graveside or we're in the columbarium, the last words the Methodist clergy will speak are words from the book of Jude. And again, if you've hung out with Methodists for a while, you've heard this often. The last words spoken at the graveside of the columbarium are these words, now to the one who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of God's glory with rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. I want that to be the last thing ringing in people's ears when we finish the funeral service. To me, that's so much more transformative than um, y'all come back now, you hear? What we say and do at the time of death and funerals is important. John Wesley loved 1 John because it makes so much out of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And You know, in the body of Christ for the last 2,000 years, we've noticed that we always have to keep returning to the basics. 
for whatever reason. I know it has something to do with our sin nature, but we've got to keep returning to the basics. We actually have bishops of our church, not around here, but some out west, one in particular who has made a name for herself by saying that we Christians make too much out of Jesus. We need to take Jesus off of our pedestal and then we'll be able to react and relate better to everybody else. Isn't that amazing? Saw one of our leaders recently send out an article and in that article this person said that we as human beings we are not broken we don't need to be fixed we just need to celebrate who we are on both of those accounts my friend John Wesley would have something to say because the Bible would have something to say about those so out of love for you my friends I encourage you I plead with you to put your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. You'll never be able to make too much out of him or out of what he will do with you. Put your, hand, put your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. Know how much he loves you. Know that Jesus Christ will, will never leave you alone. He will never let you be. He will keep bothering you. So you become like him one day. He will keep bothering you till you become the person he created you to be. He will use everything in your life, every circumstance in your life, every event in your life to mold you, prune you, and to make you more like himself, like him. So put your life in the hands of Jesus Christ so that he can do his great and marvelous work in your life. Friends, would you join me as we pray together for just a few moments? I'm going to offer you some moments of silence so that the Spirit can finish this message in you. Let us pray. God, we open our lives to you. We place our lives in your hands. And we pray. We pray, God, that we will never, we will never do anything that will hinder the work of Jesus Christ in our lives.